Welcome to a special edition of The Illumined Heart with your hosts Kevin Allen and Steve McMeans. Stay tuned. The interview that follows is part two of a three-part series commemorating the 25th anniversary of the repose of Father Seraphim Rose, who left this world on September 2nd, 1982. The interview was conducted by Illumin Heart co-host Kevin Allen, with his biographer and spiritual child, Father Damascene, conducted in Father Seraphim's rustic cell in the forest in Platina, California. Today's program is titled, Father Seraphim Rose, The Man, The Struggler. If you'd like information on the books published and distributed by St. Herman of Alaska Monastery, their website is www.sthermanpress.com. That's www.sthermanpress.com. Let's return now to the rustic cell of Father Seraphim Rose with Kevin Allen. Well, Father Damascene, thank you again for joining me on this edition of the Illumined Heart. Thank you, Kevin. And uh, it's a blessing again to be back in the monastic cell of both yourself and, and, and your mentor, Father Seraphim Rose, for our interview. In this uh, edition, The Man and the Struggler, we'll talk a little bit about Seraphim Rose as, as, a, as an individual. You know, you mentioned, um, and, and you've written in your, in your book, uh, Father Seraphim Rose, his life and his works, a large number of, of, of figures and writers influenced Eugene Rose first and Father Seraphim Rose. So mm -hmm. it would obviously, in a, in a brief interview, be impossible to go through all mm -hmm. of the influences, but one sticks out, I think, and that is St. John Maximovich. And so I thought we'd start this interview talking about St. John, the Wonder Worker of San Francisco, St. John Maximovich. Um, and his relationship with uh, Father Seraphim Rose. Mm -hmm. Well, in one place, Father Seraphim wrote that Archbishop John was his guiding star, and he's our guiding star. Uh, Father Archbishop John was um, many things to Father Seraphim. He was a uh, he was a he was his hierarch when San Francisco, his ruling bishop. The Brotherhood was founded with uh, or Saint Herman of Alaska Brotherhood was founded with a blessing of Saint John. Uh, and uh, he was the guide of the Brotherhood during those early years, a guide personally of, of Father Seraphim. He was a spiritual father to him. Uh, he was an example to him as of, of what an Orthodox Christian should be. He was a, a, a living saint that uh, Father Seraphim recognized as such from the, from the very beginning. And so Father Seraphim saw the... Um, the spiritual power, the grace of the Orthodox Church embodied in in St. John. Father Alexi Young um, told me something that uh, Father Seraphim told him back in the early days of our, our monastery here. He said that uh, before, he, Father Seraphim said that before he became Orthodox, he was in, attracted to Chinese philosophy, which he studied in depth, uh, because it had a, a very noble conception of man. And uh, then later, when he became Orthodox, he found in Orthodoxy, of course, the the, the uh, the most noble conception of man, uh, the fulfillment of that, what was prefigured in Chinese philosophy. And he said that he found in St. John that noble a man, that, that, that a man more noble than any person he'd ever met before. Really? 
You know, it strikes me, and, and I'd love to have your reaction to this, that, that they were really different sorts of, of men in some ways. In, in, in the sense I'm, I mean this, it seems to me that Father Seraphim was highly intellectual, as you mentioned in the previous interview, almost a genius. Um, knew many languages and so on and so forth, studied theology and Eastern religions. Seems that Father, uh, that, that St. John was, you know, a different, I mean, he's even been called maybe, I hope this isn't a reverend, a fool for Christ in some, some ways, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. just very, very different sorts of men. Do you find that ironic or striking or that a man that came from where Father Seraphim was coming from would be so impacted by someone who maybe had a very different demeanor and a different orientation? Well, I think more of their, their similarities and their differences. Obviously, they have very different backgrounds. Father Seraphim was raised in San Diego, an American Protestant family, went through this whole period of searching and struggling to find the truth. Uh, Archbishop John never went through that. He he was raised in a pious Orthodox home, so their their backgrounds are very different. Uh, where they're similar, of course, is their single-minded determination to really live out the Orthodox faith to its fullest, and to really enter in fully into the heart of the Church and experience the grace of the Church to to as Father Seraphim said to find Christ in the in the Orthodox Church. Uh, they were both selfless servants. There, as, especially in Father Seraphim's later life, he took on that that cross of pastorship that that Saint John bore so so nobly. Uh, so in that sense, they were very very similar. And in terms of Father Seraphim being an intellectual, Archbishop John not being known as an intellectual, um, actually even in that, they weren't so different because uh, of course Saint John was intelligent, you know, and he's a very intelligent person. But and and Father Seraphim wasn't was had this genius, genius level IQ. But he consciously, deliberately humbled his mind. And remember, in the, the last talk we had, I, I said that Father Seraphim said, "I crucified my mind," and uh, so he became like Saint John. In fact, mm. I said that Saint John was a model for him. Well, he was a model for him in all ways in in presenting the theology of the Church. Father Seraphim mm. was very much like Saint John, and he, mm. yeah, he, Father Seraphim took as his uh, example for presenting theology. Saint John. In fact, in a article he wrote on the in the tenth anniversary of Saint John's Repose, nineteen seventy six, uh, he talked about the theology of Saint John, and he began by relating a, a service that he did he'd attended in San Francisco, in the convent of, uh, of Abbas Ariadna, uh, which was under Saint John. Abbas Ariadna was a close disciple of Saint John. It was a feast of the uh, Dormition of the Mother of God, and Father Seraphim at that time, Eugene Rose. You know, at that point, he was wondering, do we really have to believe these accounts about all the apostles being brought from the ends of the earth to attend the, the burial of the Mother of God? It sounds like it sounds a little bit hard to believe. And then he heard from the abbess uh, during her sermon. She said that, you know, we must believe the teaching of the church. We must believe it simply, and not not doubt. You know, and she was, and Father Seraphim, when he was struck in his heart like that, he says, yes, well, you know, he understood. We have to be simple. We have to believe simply what the what was what is handed down to us in the church, and Father Seraphim wrote in this article. He said that, and this, and he found that simple faith, that simple childlike faith, in Saint John, mm. and uh, and that became his his model mm. for for believing in the church, believing in the theology of the church, and presenting the theology, presenting the teaching of the church to others. Mm. You wrote in in uh, in your book that. Or maybe quoting, I think it was quoting uh, uh, Father Seraphim, that, where he said, if you're an Orthodox Christian, you can do this. It, constantly thinking of higher things is what you're referring to. And have people call you crazy, 
or say that you're a bit touched or something like that, but still you have your own life, you le you lead it and get to heaven. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up because yeah. that uh, that's another aspect of St. John's influence on, on, on Father Seraphim. Uh, that Father Seraphim saw in St. John a man who lived for the other world. He was already in the other world. He was he had his feet firmly on the earth, as Father Seraphim said, and at the same time his mind and his heart were constantly in, in heaven. That's where his heart was, as Christ said, you know, you know, we are... Where, um, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And St. John's treasure was in heaven, so he was constantly looking above. Mm. And that's one one of the main things that Father Seraphim learned from St. John, is to always be looking above. Because Father Seraphim had many struggles after he became Orthodox and after he became a monk. There were many struggles in the monastery. And any time he would be tempted to get discouraged, and there were many times that when he did, he would always be thinking of the example of St. John and how mm. he was constantly looking above. Mm. Uh, and he would be, and then Father Seraphim would pray to Saint John, you know, help us out. Mm. And he, he knew that Saint John was with him, with the Brotherhood, with the monastery, mm. as the monastery's heavenly protector. And he was guiding the monastery, protecting the monastery uh, from the other world, just as if he as if he was alive on the, on the earth. Mm. So clearly, he considered Saint John Maximovich a saint before he was officially recognized, because Saint. Uh, Father Seraphim reposed before that happened. Oh yeah, Father Seraphim uh, considered him a saint while Saint John was alive. Okay. Uh, at that time, in the Russian Church, Russian Church abroad, there were two different schools of thought on who Saint John was. Some thought he was crazy. Sometimes he was uh, he was you couldn't really depend on him. He was a little too odd, strange. And then there are other other people, many many people, who regarded him as a living saint. And Father Seraphim, from the very mm. beginning, was in the latter latter group. Mm. And later, later, I should say the 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 former group. Many of them repented later and and uh, you know acknowledged him as a as a saint, mm. even at his funeral. Saint um, Ignati Briancaninov and and Saint Theophan the Recluse um, were also important influences, correct? On on Father Ser on Father Seraphim. Yes. Uh -huh. And and I think somewhere he called them um, the link to the patristic age for those of us that are in the contemporary world. Uh huh. How how are we to understand that? Um, why were they considered by Father Seraphim to be such significant links? Well, Father Seraphim said that if if we if we're going to be linked to the saints of ancient times, the early fathers of the church, we have to be linked to the saints of our own times. And he had that connection with Saint John. And then we have to also have the link to saints of recent times who are who. Uh, Transmit this patristic wisdom from the ancient times to our modern modern times, and uh, he said that um, Saint Ignatius and Saint Theophon they they were well Saint Ignatius died in eighteen sixty seven Saint Theophon in I think eighteen eighteen nineties they uh, both of them uh, although they weren't didn't live in the twentieth century nevertheless they dealt with many modern problems. Uh, they, many of the issues that we face in our modern times were already known in their day, and they dealt with these issues straight on and helped us to help us to uh, know the patristic mind as it as it's uh, as it views these various modern issues and modern problems. I uh, moving to a, a, a different topic, Father. Um, I understand that from reading your book that that. Uh, Eugene Rose prayed the Panahia prayer, Most Holy Mother of God, save us, even before he knew the the Jesus prayer. And and some might find that shocking or surprising, especially if there are any non-Orthodox out there, that he would have prayed to the Mother of God before he even prayed the Jesus prayer formally. 
but so so can you put that in context and talk a little bit about Father Seraphim's piety to the Mother of God? I mean, how it was formed in him, how he understood the place and role of the Mother of God in the life of the Orthodox Christian. Well, I should say that uh, that statement about him praying the Panagia prayer, the, the Most Holy Mother of God, uh, save us before the Jesus prayer. That was before he became Orthodox. He was still preparing to become Orthodox Christian. Um, it might have even been before he actually met an Orthodox priest. I don't know, but uh, definitely it was before he became Orthodox. Uh, and uh, he had this piety from the Mother of God, for the Mother of God, uh, this veneration for the Mother of God, from the from the very beginning. And really, this is a mystery. I I don't really know the answer to that. We we just know that he was praying to the Mother of God, and he had this great devotion for her. Uh, he was also, of course, praying the Jesus prayer because the Jesus prayer is, was the main prayer for him, uh, for as for any Orthodox monk or any Orthodox Christian. But he also had this piety to the Mother of God, mm -hmm. and I. Um, he we would he would say every day the Optina five hundred it's called, hmm. um, and that's that comes from Optina Monastery. The Optina elders would have this prayer rule and would give to people, uh, where it's uh, you say a hundred Jesus prayer uh, excuse me three hundred Jesus prayers, and then uh, one hundred prayers to the Mother of God, fifty to one's guardian angel, and fifty to all saints. Hmm. So he prayed that, but in addition to that, and he 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 prayed much more than that of course the, the, that often at 500 that was kind of the basic the basis for the rest of the prayers and he also prayed uh, frequently uh, kathos and canons to the mother of god and our former abbot father herman said especially at the end of his life father seraphim was frequently doing these canons and kathos to the mother of god in his either in the church or in his cell and um of course, he published a book of saint john on the orthodox veneration of the mother of god he understood the proper veneration and um that's kind of like, really, it's that's between Father Seraphim and the Mother of God. Mm. It's kind of a mystery. And William Merlosky in his book, Mystical Theology of the Eastern Church, even says that the, the Most Holy Mother of God is a mystery of the Church. Mm. And it's really hard to explain to those yeah. outside the Church. Yeah. We don't believe that she's our Redemptress. You know, right. Christ himself is, 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 is our only Redeemer. Right. But she is a heavenly intercessor. She's a helper. She's close to us. And Father Seraphim had that, that veneration. Mm. And it's very interesting that uh, he died in the afterfeast of the Dormition of the Mother of God. Mm. Uh, the, like to her feast, and mm. um, you know, per, perhaps you know, we she she took him. In other words, she helped him to the to the um, to the other world. And we mm. we even say in, the, in our prayers and in, in the church's prayers, we ask the Mother of God to help us and at the hour of death to you know help us in the passage to mm. to to heaven. Former Abbot Herman um, once called Father Seraphim a hesychist, and I asked this question of uh, Abbot uh, Gerasim when I when I interviewed him. For those that are listening that don't know what that word means, I'll, I'll mention again, it's one who prays constantly. Do you, do you describe him? Would you describe him as a as a hesychist? Well, I should say this, that uh, Father Herman once told Father Seraphim, said, Father Seraphim, you're a hesychist. Father Seraphim became indignant. He said, I don't know what that means. Mm -hmm. He knew intellectually what it means. He didn't want to pose in any way. He didn't want to think of himself as some holy hesychist. Uh, he was not a person who stayed in his cell all the time and prayed. He was he labored in the monastery. He, you know, he prayed his cell rule at night, and he and he said special prayers at night. He would be praying in the church in front of the altar, in addition to attending all the daily services of the church and and uh, serving the divine liturgy and so on. And he was, uh, but he would be laboring in the monastery. You know, was we were they they had to labor in order to to support the monastery. They were publishing books and. So he was always busy. He never wasted any time. But I, I would say he was a hesychast in this sense, that he was in a constant state of 
as you, we talked about earlier, keeping his mind directed towards God, directed towards towards heaven, uh, keeping his mind and his heart in the other world. He was in, constantly in that state of watchfulness, that state of prayer. People talk about how they would see him at the at the table in Trapeza, you know, saying the Jesus prayer quietly to himself or silently. Um, and, uh, you know, that was when people were happened to see him and what he was doing when people were not watching him, I, I can't say, but I, but, but my my sense of from knowing him and other what other people would 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 have said is that he had this was in that constant state of prayer and watchfulness. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd like to talk uh, some about the personal attributes and characteristics and virtues um, of Father Seraphim that have been described in in your book and in other places. And I find it so interesting that you, that you write that he really struggled hard to work on these. And, and maybe as we go through them, you can highlight or give a story or an example of, of, of each of them. And I, I would just like to quote you, you back to yourself here and to our listeners along this line where you wrote that, as Father Seraphim knew, transfiguration doesn't happen of itself. He did not wait for the virtues to come naturally, but seeing their lack in himself, he consciously labored to acquire them, hoping on Christ to strengthen them. And each day entailed constant unseen warfare, watching and fighting against the interior movements of the fallen man. Yeah. One of them, um, and you've mentioned it a couple of times, is this kind of deadness to the world. Now, we, we tend to understand the world not as just you know the, the world that we live in, but but the passions. Can you talk about your experience of Father Seraphim and that that virtue, that sense? Well, and definitely in terms of cutting off the passions. See, he was uh, uh, he was as I said, he was always in this watchful state. He was serious. I mean, he, he took his monastic life seriously. He was a dedicated monk. He was a he was a true monk. You know, he. Uh, uh, he took his monastic calling seriously. He took his, in fact, he was an Orthodox Christian, and he he talked frequently about the struggle that the Christian life entails. You know, and he he talked about in our modern American society, we don't like struggle. We called our modern American society pampered, a self-worshipping generation, the me generation. Uh, and uh, he said he knows he, he realized that we have to fight against that in ourselves. This the state of wanting always wanting to pamper ourselves to gratify our egos and so on. And so he was. Uh, Always in that state of putting him himself to death, putting the fallen man to death, putting putting to death the old man, mm. so that Christ could live in him. Mm. Mm. Uh, and uh, he never was, he never was, I know, didn't have, was not idle. You know, didn't have idle moments, and he was constantly laboring, praying, um, somehow working for the kingdom of God in every every minute of his life. Mm. And uh, he talked a lot about the virtue of constancy, how we have to be constant in our daily practice of, of spiritual life and constantly being giving ourselves to what he called daily spiritual injections of reading the lives of saints, of reading the spiritual literature, the, the Holy Scriptures, the, going to the services of the church, our daily prayers, and so on. And he lived that life of constancy, also stability, you know, uh, staying in one place, you know, laboring one, with one, in one's salvation, not floating around from place to place. So all these things that helped him to die to the world of the passions. Mm-hmm. But in, in addition to that, he, he he was dead to the world in the sense of dead to any kind of intellectual modern fashions. Mm-hmm. You know, he saw the modern world as an anomaly. Even before he became Orthodox, he discovered Orthodox, he understood the modern world to be an anomaly. It's it's turned away from this ancient, you know, the the wisdom of the, that was known in ancient times and is, is more engrossed in the materialism sensuality and so on and so and the philosophies that come the philosophies come that come out of that he says that the the uh the philosophy of the 20th century is is nihilism 
quoting from Nietzsche. And the other side of, of nihilism is chiliasm, which is a belief of, since there's no God and there's no no heaven, let's make the kingdom of God on this earth. And that's where this whole pampered, self-worshipping generation comes out of. And he says that we have to realize that that's in ourselves. We have this nihilism in ourselves. We have this unbelief in ourselves. Mm. And we have to war against that. Mm. We have to struggle against it. And that's why he was able to... Uh, see through, cut through a lot of the deceptions of the modern times, where, whereas, um, you know, many contemporary Orthodox Christians kind of like, kind of go along with the spirit of the times. The things we, we can kind of make, we can kind of mix orthodoxy with the mind of the times, the contemporary worldview, the contemporary cosmology. And Father Seraphim was able to cut through that deception. And where uh, the teaching of the Holy Fathers, for example, was uh, at variance with the modern worldview, the modern cosmology, the modern the scient uh, scientific theoretical models, Father Seraphim openly taught that these are incompatible and this is the teaching of the fathers. He did not try to make some kind of artificial combination, try to force the teaching of the fathers into the modern cosmology. He didn't want to view orthodoxy and the teaching of the fathers from the point of view of a modern mind looking at them. He wanted to look at the modern world from the point of view of the Holy Fathers. Mm -hmm. In order to do that, he had to acquire the mind of the fathers. In order to acquire the mind of the fathers, he had to put to death his own mind. That's why he said, I crucified my mind. That's what makes him so special, because he was a great intellect, as we talked about last time. But he crucified that mind, mm. humbled it, had that simple faith of St. Mm. John and all the saints. You, you've written that he was a discerner of the times. I think we've we've kind of covered that one. He he saw the times for what they were. Yes. He didn't, didn't buy into the, you know, the nonsense that, that, that most of us buy into. He really was able to separate the wheat from the proverbial chaff and uh -huh. know what the patristic mindset was. And mm -hmm. is, mm -hmm. is that what you... Yes, exactly. And he was, you know, when he before he became Orthodox, he was involved with that whole nihilistic mentality. So he kind of lived through that and he, he emerged out of it. And so he had, it gave him a, as I wrote in the Father Servant's biography, it gave him kind of an edge to understand the nature of the times. He was also on the on the the vanguard of that whole of the whole movement towards Eastern religions that's occurred in the West, beginning in the late fifties and early sixties, and so he was able to see the way, show the way out of that as well. You've spoken about this, but maybe you could just give us highlight of it if, if you haven't covered it uh, enough on his humility and the fact that there is quote no spiritual pretense or affectation unquote your your words on on him. Yeah, yeah, he's very honest. Uh, he didn't think much of himself really. He uh, he knew where, he knew what he was about. He knew what the orthodoxy was about, and uh, in that sense, he was very firm in his conviction and his belief. But he personally, he really didn't think much of himself, and uh, he didn't want to exalt himself in any way and think of himself highly. And that's why, as I said earlier, when Father Herman called him a hesychast, he did not like that at all. And I, I remember I was at a lecture at Saint Herman Pilgrimage in 1981. I was sitting in the audience, and Father Seraphim was giving a talk and asking for questions and answers. And some person stood up in the back, and he and he said, uh, "Father Seraphim, I perceive you are a holy man." <laughs> Father Seraphim did not like that. He said, "Get to the question. What's the question?" Um, that's just one example, but you know, I I just in in knowing him, and again, and you know, people telling me about him, I know that he uh, he really cultivated that virtue of, of humility. And certainly his, whatever intellectual pow power he had, he had no, no pride in that. He knew that was not going to, yeah, meant nothing in, in, the, in, the, yeah. in, the, in the scheme of things in the Christian yeah. life. You, you write that love was, was something that was important and, and you, you experienced that. And tell us about that. That's a, a virtue that maybe with someone like him, you might not, I don't know, expect or something. You know, he, 
with his intellect and, and his asceticism. Can you talk about how that manifested itself? Yes, he, uh, well, I mentioned before how he went through this period of intellectual elitism before he became orthodox. I don't think he was very loving there. I think deep, deep down he had a loving heart, but it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't opened up. And through the grace of the church, when he was received into the church and receiving the sacraments of the church and living the orthodox life uh, and had such examples before him, like St. John, that that love was blossomed out in in him. And it and it, I think it just grew as time went on. I, I know it did, because as, as he, especially as he grew as a pastor, his, his faith matured through, right up to the time of his death. His love was manifested in his concern and his care for people and suffering for them, suffering over them praying for them. He would be seen in, in church. We had these young men staying in the monastery, and some came from troubled backgrounds and were kind of mixed up, and Father Seraphim would be praying in the altar at night, weeping over these people. Mm. Uh, many people talk about how he, you know, would sacrifice for them. He would, he would you know, walk, you know, it would be snowing outside, and, and he'd, he'd have to walk several times up the hill and up and down the hill in the snow to get mm. people's cars stuck out of the road, and um, but so in this many ways, he, he sacrificed himself, and I think that's where we you see most of all that love. And he talked about that a lot because he saw that one of the main dangers of orthodoxy in our times is this head knowledge. You know, we become orthodox in order to be better than the Protestants or Catholics, or we, you know, we know, we know more than them and we have the right teaching and so on. That's a temptation because orthodoxy means right glorification. So people have this temptation to be correct, to be um, intellectually superior to others. Hyper-orthodox, or yeah. whatever the terminology yeah. is. Yeah, it's all in the head. And he says, that's not going to save you. You have to have a, you have to develop your heart. You have to have a, a Christian heart. He says, you can be orthodox without being Christian, in the sense that you can't really be orthodox, but in the sense that you can have these, intellectually have these right beliefs, but you're not really living a Christian mm. life. And we have to develop that, make the heart more supple, more warm, and we have to pray for that. Speaking of heart, that's a great lead-in on this aspect of, of his personality and, and, and so on. Pain of heart and suffering. I, I know his, his monastic partner, former abbot Herman again, wrote, above all, Father Seraphim knew how to suffer. And, and you refer to the pain of heart. Can you talk a little bit about how Father Seraphim understood pain of heart and suffering in the life of, a, of an Orthodox Christian? Well, he said that one of the keys, one of the, the, actually the main key to enter into the mind of the Holy Fathers was that precisely that pain of heart. I think he means. I think he meant different things by that. I think it's the, um, well, it's the suffering that all Christians must endure in this world because we're we're not of this world and and uh, uh, we're living for another world and so we're going to be out of, we're not going to fit in totally with the world. So we're going to have to suffer some in some way in the world if we're really living an Orthodox Christian life. If we feel co totally comfortable in the world, then something's wrong. So that that kind of suffering, I think, is one aspect. Uh, secondly. It's pain of heart, repenting over one's sins, you know, feeling pain of heart over that. Pain of heart and praying for others and caring for other people. St. Pisces of Manathos, by the way, um, in councils that he, he gave that Father Seraphim didn't know, but definitely he lived. St. Pisces talks a lot about uh, feeling pain of in one's heart when praying for others. And he says in order for one's prayer really to be effectual, you really have to feel that pain. Mm -hmm. And also I think that and another aspect of pain of heart is a literal pain of heart. And also, the Holy Fathers, including St. Pisius or Elder Pisius, talk about the literal pain of heart where we the mind descends into the heart and that, that heart is the center of the highest part of the soul, you know, the, the noose. And, and we uh, descends there and then a, a person can literally feel a, a pain of the physical organ of the heart. Father Seraphim said the, the heart is not just a pump. It's, a, it's an organ which knows God. And the, the Fathers, including St. Siloan the Eighth and Night and 
uh, talk about how the we have a physical heart and then we have the metaphysical heart. And we first we find the physical heart, and then through the physical heart we find the metaphysical heart, which is the center of our being. And we, and in that that place we feel that pain of of repentance, the pain of suffering over over others mm -hmm. in, in our prayer for them. But for those of us that are not in a vocational uh, place where we can really approach that level, perhaps of of understanding. Um, I'm tempted to go there, but I, I know that it's above my head. For those of us that are in the world, would pain of heart just be caring deeply for others and putting others above self and sharing in the suffering of others and the world and over one's sins? Yeah, absolutely. Would, would that be yes, yes, and you know, and praying that. for others and. Um, of course, we you know we we pray with you know with with uh, with all our heart and and that that's a kind of a pain of heart. Yeah. But you know everybody suffers. I don't think that anybody's no nobody's without suffering. Suffering yeah. is the reality of the human condition since the fall. Yeah. And God has allowed that in order to remind us that we're not God and that we have to return to God. And this fallen world is not our final home, but the, but the kingdom of heaven yeah. is our final home. So so we we're going to suffer. So the question is, what are we going to do in that suffering? Are we going to just seek distractions, seek to, right. you know, drugs, Valium, drugs, Valium or, whatever. you know, some kind of a technological device where we can, right. you know, entertain ourselves and you know, yeah. tune everything out or entertain ourselves to death? Yeah, exactly. What are we going to do in that suffering? We're we going to try to escape from it because there's so many ways the world is perfecting the art of escaping yeah. from suffering. And each each year, new things come out to escape from to escape from suffering. And uh, but instead of escaping from it, we have to face it, face that suffering, and endure it. As Saint Mark the Ascetic said, endure it in the in the spirit of devotion to Christ. And that's what pain of heart is. You know, we're going to lay that suffering before God in 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 in, in prayer, that the, the burden before God. Are we going to suffer in that spirit of devotion? Or are we going to you know turn away from God, tune him out? And seek distraction. And so each person, whether or not they can, you know, enter in these deep levels of prayer of the heart, which which I was hinting at earlier from Saint Elder Pisces of Mount Athos, whether or not one can enter into that, every person can enter into that experience of, of pain of heart. Thank you for clarifying that. I appreciate that, and I, I know our listeners will too. I think I read or one of your interviews that said you always felt deep stillness in his presence. Yeah. Okay. First of all, literally. When I would want to sit and talk with him, I remember sitting on a little log with Father Seraphim outside the church, and I would be talking and talking about things at, at campus and when I was going to college and so on. And, and he would just listen, and I would say something, and then he would just maybe say a few words, and he wouldn't say much, and it would be kind of silent. And then he would be waiting for me to say something. And then I would say something, and he would say something. And so if he had something to say, he would say it. But there would be these moments of silence and because the seraphim didn't want to say an unnecessary word. And you can re read writings of the Holy Fathers like St. Joseph of, of Optina, Elder of Optina. You know, people said that he really didn't say too much because he and, and it's because he didn't want to speak an unnecessary word. He didn't want to offer his own ideas. He wanted to come from the Holy Spirit. And if he's asked a question, that means, you know, he's called upon to answer. So oftentimes Father Seraphim would just be silent. And I have an, a friend of a friend who was... Uh, uh, Orthodox Christian who came Orthodox about the same time I did. In fact, she was at Father Seraphim's first lecture at UC Santa Cruz. And she remembers talking with Father Seraphim, and she would be talking away, da-da-da-da-da, and, and Father Seraphim but he's kind of had his his hand near his mouth, and and then she noticed he was crossing his mouth. And her understanding of that was that Father Seraphim didn't want to offer a, any words from his own wisdom, mm -hmm. his own opinion. He wanted to offer something that came from from God. 
And uh, so in that, in that sense, he had that that silence. But and sp that was a literal sense of silence. Right. But also it was that spiritual sense. And many people have talked about this, and yeah. I, I myself have experienced it. Father Vladimir Anderson is a close spiritual son of Father Seraphim, a godson of Father Seraphim. Father Lexi Young, another godson of Father Seraphim. Now he's Hiram Monk Ambrose. They both talk about when they were in Father Seraphim's presence, this stillness kind of radiated from him. And they would come with these problems and they would be kind of agitated coming from the world. And they would be in Father Seraphim's presence. And even though he didn't have to say much, many words, that stillness was contagious. You know, they caught that stillness mm -hmm. and they walked away feeling that. Mm -hmm. And uh, another spiritual daughter of Father Seraphim, Barbara Murray, says that, you know, she would come to Father Seraphim with these, uh, you know, all kinds of perplexities. And, and she would... And she, you know, how am I going to deal with all these problems that I'm facing in my life? And she would leave, you know, talking to Father Seraphim to go to church, and then suddenly all the problems didn't really seem important at all because he had that stillness. Also, Father Lexi said at the, the end of his life, right before Father Seraphim died, the last time he went to saw Father Seraphim before he got sick was uh, he came to Father Seraphim. Was, I guess he was sat outdoors with Father Seraphim and talked, and he, he felt that very profoundly, that, that stillness that came from him, that he was totally at peace. That was very... That was I felt that was significant. Yeah. That you know, right before he died, he had that yeah. he had really entered into that deep yeah. stillness, yeah. that but it peace, was a palpable, palpable stillness. That could yeah, be communicated to others almost. Yeah, it was like yeah. what Christ said. You know, my peace I give you, not as mm. the world gives. Give I unto you. It's a Christ peace. It's not the peace of the world. It's, yeah. And this is what Father Seraphim had. Mm. Again, I'm quoting a lot of of uh, former Abbot Herman from your book, but but he said that he learned patience from from Father Seraphim. Yeah, that was a virtue that he he had, uh, and uh, that, he, that he cultivated. And I, I mentioned earlier that he talked a lot about these virtues of constancy and stability. And even before he became uh, a monk, he, I, there was another uh, friend, a friend of the Brotherhood from the very early days when the, the, the Father Seraphim was still living in San Francisco, was a layman and working in the Orthodox bookstore. A friend of his named Anthony, and he said that. Uh, Anthony was a layman, you know, and Father Seraphim would talk to him. At that time, Eugene Rose would talk to him about stability. He says, you you know, you, if you go to a parish and you you find that maybe there's better chanting in another parish or maybe the spiritual father spends more time in, with people in confessions or maybe the uh, spiritual level seems higher in that other parish or whatever it is, you know, it seems more spiritual. Uh, he says, don't go. Don't, don't, don't leave your parish. You know, stay in one place. You know, if you jump around from place to place, you're not really putting down roots, and you can't really grow spiritually. In order to grow spiritually, you have to put down those roots. Mm. And Father Seraphim did that very much, you know, in, in his own life. Mm. When he came to the monastery, he just wanted to stay here. He didn't even want to travel. Father Herman would say to him, you know, don't you want to go to Mount Athos? Father Herman went to Mount Athos. Father Seraphim said, no, we have to find Mount Athos in our own hearts. Yeah, yeah that, that's really, really impressive. Father, you, you wrote in the eighth chapter of your book, again, Father Seraphim Rose, His Life and Works, and, and that chapter was titled The Taste of Hell, of quote-unquote forbidden deeds that for, at that time, Eugene Jean Rose, quote, had disgusted him even at the time he was committing them, unquote. You don't go into detail, and I'm not asking for all the details, but I, I'm assuming that they were of a sexual or fleshly nature. And I'm wondering, finally, how and what did Father Seraphim counsel on, on these sorts of uh, struggles? Well, how did he counsel? Well, he gave the teaching of the fathers on dealing with sexual temptations and passions. Uh, and, of course, he recognized that this is a very prevalent problem in our times. Um, and I think it's even more prevalent today since his repose with Internet pornography. It's, 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 a, it's a new thing the devil has invented to, to tempt people. But um, he would give the counseling of the, counsel of the fathers to uh, 
to one one letter he wrote to his spiritual uh, son. He said, "Flee to the quickly to the prayer of Jesus," quoting from Abba Barsanufrius of Gaza, which he translated. He says, uh, "Flee quickly to the prayer of Jesus, and you will find repose." Pray ceaselessly, saying, "Lord Jesus Christ, deliver me from shameful passions." So we would counsel to turn to God in prayer, because if we turn to God in prayer, first of all. We can't be indulging in these sexual passions in our mind or or physically if we're if we're in the presence of God and if we're conscious of God God's presence for us. As I said before, Father Seraphim constantly had God in his mind and God God his mind and heart directed towards towards heaven towards God. And if we have our mind in, in heaven like that, we won't be going down to the earth to these the sinful passions. Uh, and so so first of all, raising the mind to God in that way is a is a is a is a major very important major help and uh and secondly god does help you know in other words we pray to god and it's not just the fact that we're turning our mind to him it's not just psychological but we're receiving god's grace god's help mm. so that's one thing that he counseled then other there's other counsels he gave for example you know avoiding over familiarity uh with with people uh with whom you might be tempted to have some kind of a sinful relationship with uh and uh, just being constantly on guard uh, in in the spiritual life, Father, uh, you you commented to me and 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 in your book, you you mentioned that um, Eugene Rose had written of in, in one of his letters or some of his letters of suicidal thoughts, and that former Abbot Herman mentioned that he definitely had a death wish. What would you say to those who might comment because of this psychology, um, Father Seraphim represents a Christianity which uh, somewhat overplays morbidity. Well, we have to distinguish between the old Eugene Rose and the reborn Eugene Rose and Father Seraphim, because Father Seraphim was literally reborn uh, when he entered the Orthodox Church, and he wrote about this. You know, he said that I've been reborn in the Lord, and he's felt such joy that he's never known uh, his his all the goodness in him that was already inherent in his, in his nature, was you know, just blossomed out and was, was multiplied by the, the grace of God. The grace of God was united with his soul. He became a, really a new being. And it was that old uh, Eugene Rose that had those suicidal thoughts. And as you mentioned in Father Seraphim, in one of Father Seraphim's letters during that very dark period of his life before his conversion, he does mention having suicidal thoughts. Um, and he was in despair, not finding the tr- truth. As I said, he experienced the the torments of hell even while he was alive, and he was uh, uh, he was he turned uh, consciously turned away from God because he had not found Him in the religion in which he was raised. He was looking for something for something more, looking for that truth, and he encountered that truth in orthodoxy. So, mm-hmm. when he became orthodox, he became a new person. At that time, he would, of course he had no suicidal thoughts after he became orthodox. His, there's no record of that, certainly, uh, and I certainly would doubt it, mm-hmm. knowing that his 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 true rebirth in 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 Christ in the Orthodox Church. Uh, but he had a, a healthy remembrance of death, as the fathers talk about. Uh, and uh, he wanted to continue working. He 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 felt that we have limited time in order to do the work of God. He said, "It's later than you think. Hasten therefore to do the work of God." He had that 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 uh, awareness. That he, however many years he had, was a limited number of years, and he he wanted those years in order to do maximum, to uh, to come closer to God, to find God. He told Father Lexi Young, you know, you have to, if you don't find Christ in this life, you will not find him in the life to come. He wanted to go draw closer to Christ, come, uh, have that that closer experience 
of Christ in the church, have that deeper experience of the church. And also, a very important part of his life was to bring that Orthodox faith, bring the grace of the church to others, to the non-Orthodox, to be a disseminator of grace, to bring the truth that he had discovered in the Orthodox church that he had suffered over for so long, Mm. suffered so so long to find, and had been such despair over not finding, to give that truth to others. And that truth for him, of course, was Jesus Christ. He said that he, he understood that the truth is a person when he became Orthodox. And uh, so he had that, uh, that desire to, to live and to bring forth fruit in the time that God, God gave mm-hmm. him. And so I don't think he, he was morbid. I think he, uh, he had definitely a, um, a healthy understanding of Christian struggle the place of suffering in life. Maybe that's what some people might mm. consider morbid. But, uh, you know, he was a monk. Yeah. He was a monk, and he uh, just lived the life of a true monk. I don't think he was extreme as a monk. I think he was just a true monk. Which raises um, a question as, as we're leading towards the, the wrap-up of this interview, and, and that is this. And let me try to phrase this the way I mean it to be phrased. Since his work is so missionizing and evangelical in orientation and since he was a discerner of the times and talked about topics which are so um, important in the modern world we live in therefore a lot of people will read them do you think that there is a temptation perhaps for those of us who are not monastics and who read the work of one whom you've just described as being a maximalist to perhaps confuse his vocation and calling as a monk with the normal or appropriate non-monastic life for those who are reading his work. Is there mm-hmm. some way you can respond to that? Well, he did write his do, uh, wrote his works for the non-monastics as well as the monastics. He wrote it from the general readership, right? And he was trying to reach out to to everyone. And he he wrote very a lot about uh, putting the monastic texts of the Orthodox Church in their proper context, according to one's own spiritual state. And he said that we should not, either as monks or lay people, we should not um, be proud and think we can apply some very lofty teachings in the light of divine ascent or the philokalia to our own spiritual state, as if we're on the level of St. Hezekiah the Presbyter or something like that. That we have to realize that we're starting spiritual life at the lowest step, whether we're monks or, or lay people. And we, so we have to have a very down-to-earth, realistic understanding of our own low spiritual state and the low spiritual state of our times. As I mentioned before, he says that we have to understand that we come out of this self, self-worshipping, self pampered generation. So uh, I think his writings are um, applicable to everyone because he, he, he meant them to be that way. And he has many warnings in his writings against uh, misapplying spiritual texts to one's spiritual condition. So he didn't expect, obviously, everybody that would read his work to come to the, the wilderness, if you will, and live in a 10 by 15 foot rustic cell? Absolutely, absolutely not. He would not expect that. His constant teaching was that we are to, uh, to, you know, to uh, apply the teachings of the church, the writings of the fathers, the monastic saints, and so on, to our own condition. Well, Father, as, as we wrap up, I have one final question, and, and, and it's a tough one because it's so broad, but what, in your opinion, about Father Seraphim's life and writing has inspired and fascinated so many people all over the world? You mentioned Russia. They may have read more about him than even in the States. What is it about his life and his work? 
Well, there's many aspects and many things that can uh, be said about that. First of all, he had that, as I said before, he was a discerner of the times. He he understood the modern times very deeply, and he also understood the Orthodox faith very deeply. And so he was able to cut through the deceptions of the times and give the Orthodox teaching, the, the teaching of the Fathers, straight. Like the, you, When you go to Father Seraphim, you find the pure teaching of the Fathers, the pure water of grace that come from that those writings. It's not distorted or, or twisted or um, artificially molded to conform to the modern mentality. And you find a basic honesty in his writings, which I, it's, I think very refreshing for, for many people. That uh, he's... Uh, some people can, you know, kind of fudge a little bit. You know, if it's something that's a teaching of the church that's a little bit too hard for our self-worshipping pamper generation to, to take, they can kind of fudge a little bit, kind of soften it, soften it around the edges. Father Seraphim didn't do that. I think so. so some people are get turned off by that. Some people have a hard time with it, but there are many people who, who uh, want that and really appreciate that. I should say also that Father Seraphim can be very hard hitting in his writings because he was writing for for everybody, and this is this is being it's going out to the to the to the world, and he didn't want to you know, compromise sugarcoat sugarcoat anything. <laughs> but pastorally, when he was dealing with people on a one one to one basis, he was he was different, and you see that in his letters. Mm. Uh, therefore, you're, you're dealing with a, in, uh, with a soul, and the soul has these very various burdens and these various obstacles, and he understood as a pastor that you have to, you know, reach out to a person where they're at, mm. and uh, not to, you know, expect too much. And as Christ said, you don't want to put, you know, new wine into old bottles. And so he was, he was, he was very careful with that. And mm. that, that, for example, when he talks to people that are involved with Eastern religions, he'll take a different tone than when he'll be writing in Orthodox and the religion of the future. Right. Um, and uh, when he's writing to about you know to people that are coming out of a charismatic background, he'll be right. different than when he's writing about an orthodox religion gotcha. of the future. That's that's an important nuance I think of of reading him. That as a pastor, he he was again applying that warm heartedness and that love. Where here he's trying to deal with a movement or a yeah, large yeah. issue of the times uh -huh, and uh, uh -huh. might come across a little on the strong side or the hard hitting side. Well, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well, Father Damascene, again, thank you very much for um, this wonderful interview. It, it's very much appreciated. Thank you. You've been listening to a special edition of The Illumined Heart, commemorating the 25th anniversary of the repose of seeker, struggler, writer, monk, and priest, Father Seraphim Rose. For more information on the books published and distributed by St. Herman of Alaska Monastery, visit their website at www.sthermanpress.com. That's www.sthermanpress.com. This has been a special presentation of the Illumined Heart and Ancient Faith Radio, your listener-supported Orthodox Internet Radio Connection. AncientFaithRadio.com. <laughs>